Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. The way this will work is that um, uh, Ms. Cordova will read first, and then there'll be a, a Charlie Rose kind of uh, interview with Dr. Chris Freeman. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Chris first. He teaches gender studies at USC, um, including Queer LA, including the book, and he wrote the book Queer LA. Freeman is the co-editor of the Lambda Award-winning The Isherwood Century and the Lambda finalist Love West Hollywood. Jean Cordova, MSW, Master in Social Work, activist, publisher, and author, is a pioneer, founder of the gay and lesbian movement on the West Coast. Uh, she began 39 years ago as LA president of the Daughters of Belitis, opening the first lesbian center in LA in 1971. Wow, right. We owe a lot to her. Uh, her literary work includes founding and editing The Lesbian Tide, recognized as the national news magazine, a record for the lesbian feminist decade, 1971 to 80, founding the community Yellow Pages, the nation's largest LGBT business directory. Currently, she is co-founder of LEX, the Lesbian Exploratorium, a cultural guerrilla group which created the 2009 LA art exhibit, Gender Play in Lesbian Culture. Her books include, I love this title, Kicking the Habit, a Lesbian Nun Story. <laughs> <laughs> and Sexism, a Lesbian Nun Story and Sexism. It's a nasty affair. Uh, her journalism appears in Persistent Desire, a Femme Butch Reader, and The Trailblazing Dagger on Butch Women, and many other LGBT anthologies. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jean Cordova. everyone. I'm taking in everyone. Many faces I know. Ariana, you have a seat. I hope you've enjoyed the slides uh, presented in a loop by my partner, Lynn Ballen. So. There, there are pictures uh, that appear in the book. Um, so uh, if you get the book, then you can see them up close and find out what they mean. Um, we're, the way we're going to start off tonight, or this afternoon, uh, I think where we're going to start is, I had this very down here. Um, where's my drag queens? Ah, they're there. Okay. <laughs> um, I thought I'd present just for like nine minutes or so before we do the questions. Um, two little short stories. They both kind of involve, especially the second one, direct action. 
which we did a great deal of and which I think relates a lot to young queers today in the Occupy movement and um, ACT UP was a great example of that. So I want to take you back, way back, like 40 years this year, to the night of June 27, 1971. And we were out on the streets, we meaning a great big bunch of queers, were out on the street. It was Gay Pride Day, 1971. Um, so I'll start kind of in the middle. Uh, I'm 23 years old, and Morris Kite, who's with me, is 53. So uh, Morris Kite, uh, how many of you know who he was? He was uh, probably the leader of the gay movement in LA for the first decade. And uh, his background was the civil rights. So I'm going to read about that night. Um, back there, then, the Gay Pride uh, March was not called Gay Pride, and it was not in the afternoon. It was at night, because we couldn't get a police permit, and the police chief, Ed Davis, didn't want anybody to see us, so it was supposed to begin at 6 o'clock. On June 27th, the night of the march, which we called a march, not a parade back then, Despite the widespread rumor that the LAPD was going to shut down the whole damn gay march and arrest everyone, 2,000 gay people showed up that day. And keep in mind, that was the second year it was held in LA. So 2,000. Because of my telltale organizer's armband, marchers were besieging me there at the corner of uh, where the assembly began at Hawthorne and McCadden, which was one block east of Highland. We were actually going to march up Highland and east um, down to Vine Street. So the whole thing was totally different then. So people kept coming up to me uh, because of my armband. They were arriving by car, foot, bus, and bicycle. Will there be trouble with the pigs, many asked. And that, of course, is our word for the policeman back in the day. Who should I march with? Many of them asked. Most gay men looked blankly at me, saying they didn't belong to any group. They'd only heard that this was Gay Sunday in Hollywood. They'd hitchhiked from Phoenix or bust in from Colorado, looking for some place, any place on earth, to be openly gay. Even a group called the Gay Community Alliance had flown in from Hawaii. Finally, around 7 p.m., with the sun setting to our backs, we were chanting and marching five abreast down Hollywood Boulevard, every newly conscripted gay draftee shouting at the top of his or her voice. Dashing up and down as a monitor, I paused and almost came to tears. A banner carried by an elderly, straight-looking woman who was walking alone read, Heterosexuals for Homosexual Freedom. I wanted to salute this woman. Someday, perhaps, I thought, even in my own lifetime, gays will be free. That day was not tonight. I saw uniformed cops were everywhere. Several cars had male drivers dressed in full suit and tie, plain clothes LAPD, vice, or feds. The rumor about the LAPD files were true. 
They were taking photos of every monitor and anyone who looked like an organizer, including myself. When I was a social worker in South Central three years before that time, which was 1968, and it was three years after the Watts Rebellion, I'd seen many armed young men and learned that the FBI's counterintelligence program was all over the black community. The feds wanted nothing more than to hunt down every member of the so-called Black Panthers who they believed seriously sought a violent revolution and overthrow of America. So I wasn't surprised to see the FBI and the feds there that day. And luckily, most of our newly minted queers didn't notice. Looking ahead, I saw the march was breaking up into segments. Crowds were bunching up at the intersections, looking vacantly at one another, weathering whether or not to venture into the traffic. I rushed into the hugely jammed intersection at Cahuenga and motioned the marchers to cross. Standing alone, my arms outstretched against traffic, I tried to look like an imposing figure. And I was about 100 pounds lighter. <laughs> so I needed help. An aging Ford stopped in front of me and screamed out, and out of it emerged a bearded blonde guy in overalls who screamed, the only good fag is a dead fag. Get the fuck out of my way. I turned and looked at a group of feathered drag queens waiting on the corner. I screamed at the top of my lungs, ladies, come here, I need you. The frenzied fags ran devotedly into battle. What's the matter, honey? They asked me. I pointed to my Aryan. You guys, you women, I probably said you guys, have to go kiss him, get him back into his car so our people can cross the intersection. The gaggle of queens descended upon the tall, tall now narrow, speechless blonde. One of them stroked his arm and another pinched his butt. The muscled straight guy shrank away from them and dropped back into his car. Quickly he slammed the doors, raised the windows, and locked himself in. Dragophobia had saved the day. <laughs> right on, I yelled at my sisters through the now safe intersection, and off we went. The 1971 commemoration of Stonewall was the first of many grassroots events that I did with my mentor, Morris Kite over the next decade to fight for the rights of gay men and lesbians, struggling not just with politicians, but with other gay leaders and, and lesbian leaders to keep our burgeoning movement from straying from its grassroots base. Still, it wasn't until three years later, 1974, that one of our particular efforts at making legislative change finally met with a great success. Now, one of the things I had learned from Morris was to think outside the box, to revel in the unexpected. But I was more than a little shook up that summer when he called me, and he had also called Troy Perry, the founder of the Gay Metropolitan Community Church. He called us over to his McCadden Place house, which was sort of movement central, 
and he asked us to volunteer to be arrested as sex criminals. Morris had decided that the quickest way to bring down the California Penal Code against sodomy and oral copulation, and these two things were crimes back then, so if any cop looked at you and thought you were a gay or a lesbian, he thought you were guilty of sodomy and or oral copulation, whether or not he ever saw you doing it. It was kind of synonymized, put together. So Morris decided we had to get rid of this. Okay, so his idea was to get a gay couple, a lesbian couple, and a straight couple to publicly confess to these sex crimes and trick the police into arresting us. Those couples turned out to be Troy and his very young lover, Steve Gordon, couldn't have been a day over 20. Of course, Troy was about 26 at the time. A straight male couple named Jeannie Barney and her boyfriend, and me and my lover of the time, Bijo. I hesitated when Morris brought up this caper, but I'd always found it difficult to say no to Morris. Finally, I said a qualified yes, but when I went home, Bijo did not share my readiness to be arrested as sex criminals. She panicked when I brought home the legal paperwork for us to sign. She said, I haven't come home to my parents in Iowa. You're out of your mind. And she had just uh, eight years before been discharged from the Navy, so it was exactly what she didn't have in mind. It was eerily quiet in our apartment that night as Bijou and I didn't speak. I wondered if Troy's new lover, new to the movement, was making things tense at his house too. I had noticed that Morris Kite didn't put himself forward as one of the couples. <laughs> I quickly called him. I don't have a lover, he pled. His role in the plan, his plan, was to make a citizen's arrest and haul us down to the Rampart Division Police Headquarters after the press conference. I don't suppose you have a backup lesbian couple, I asked Morris, because Bijo still hadn't said yes. No, and I remind you, it was 1974, Morris said, I can't find any other out lesbian couple willing to get arrested as sex criminals. <laughs> But don't worry, he said, our lawyers will be at the police station to bail you out as soon as possible. <laughs> that evening, the last evening with B. Joe, passed like time on a broken clock. Finally, I heard her call into work to say that she'd come on down with a cold and needed tomorrow off. By the time she and I arrived at the Los Angeles Press Club, another little detail Morris hadn't told me, there's a press conference first before we get arrested. Bijou was covered with anxiety and sweat, with cameras flashing and microphones popping under the bright lights of the press club. Somehow, that moment, the risk felt surreal. I read aloud from my carefully composed statement after the others did also. I am here in the name of thousands of lesbian mothers who have stood before California judges and heard, this woman is unfit and she has no right to raise her child 
because she is homosexual. All over the country at the moment, at the time, lesbian mothers were losing custody battles because they'd walk out on their husbands and the first thing the husband would do is take them to court for the kid. Kids. I am here in the name of hundreds of lesbians who have been dishonorably discharged from the services, thrown out of their jobs, their homes, their churches. In the name of those whose lives have been ruined in the name of this penal code, I demand to be arrested. I went on to recount the case of two women in Michigan having been arrested by a forest ranger for making love in their camping tent in the forest. One of them had just finished serving three years in the state pen. By the end of the press conference, the LA Times had shown up, but the police had not. Morris stood up and arrested us in the name of the great state of California. He promptly loaded us into a bus, bannered with the sign, The Felons Six, in which we took a very slow but very public bus ride through all the major boulevards of Hollywood and downtown to LA Rampart Division, waving at all the passers-by, sending them our message. Once inside the Rampart Station, a very media-savvy savvy, Commander Weiss announced, I will not take, these, take custody of these people. We did not see the crime in action. <laughs> so it was off to the district attorney's office where our straight lawyer, Al Gordon, there were no gay lawyers who were out at the time, insisted to the DA that he didn't need to see our crime in person because there was nothing in the law which exempted private or consexual sodomy or oral copulation. So police had arrested people, whether it was consensual, public, or private. Assistant DA met with our lawyer behind closed doors. This took almost an hour. We, the felons, and our entourage waited, standing with a hopeful beach and young Steve, while the entire DA staff gawked at us, the self-confessed homosexuals. Finally, a much distressed Jacobson came before the gathered press cameras and said, any groups or individuals who wish to change current laws in California should take their complaint to the state legislature. I didn't make the law. Then he instructed his officers to escort us out of the office. Being arrested for trespassing seemed anticlimactic. <laughs> and not on message, so we cleared out. Once home, we printed thousands of leaflets urging gay couples to openly break these penal code laws. Months later, in the summer of 75, California Governor Jerry Brown, pushed strongly by Morris and the whole damn statewide gay and lesbian movement, signed an executive order overturning California's anti-sodomy laws. Where's my Charlie? Yeah, right here. Jerry Thank Brown, you. that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Governor Jerry Brown, 40 years ago, 38 years ago. Interesting. So, Gene, thank you. Am I on? I'm not sure that I'm on here. 
Thank you so much for that reading and for your wonderful book. Um, I will be teaching this book in the spring in my Queer Los Angeles course at USC because uh, Jean has given us a really important addition to the story of not only queer America but especially queer Southern California. So for that, we're really grateful. Um, I want to start with the title, When We Were Outlaws. It's in the past tense. So I want to know if that's intentional. Is it a challenge? Is it a lament? Is it a confession? When we were outlaws. I, I remember it, the title. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess given those choices, I would have to say it's a, it was written, I wrote it as a lament. Mm -hmm. And as a call to action to young queer activists. Um, you too can be an outlaw. So I would say, yeah, I think we were, the whole country was um, much more, you know, if you take 17 blocks in Hollywood to the left, we were in a much different place than we are now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Tell us a little bit about the cover. Why you chose this, what was the situation? Um, it's quite a wonderful Yes, it has choice. worked well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it was actually context? my partner's decision, but the photo um, uh, being around to be chosen was an accident. Apparent, um, I don't know who the um, photographer is, and I was hoping to smoke her out. So far, nothing. It was taken at the 1971, um, the first lesbian conference in Los Angeles, but it was called the uh, Gay Women's West Coast Conference in 1971. I know Donna was there. Uh, yeah. um, and it was located at MCC, uh, a gay church, simply because that was the only owned gay real estate. He, he was the first to buy a building. It was long before the Gay Community Services Center. And so I asked Troy, who was a buddy and a fellow sex uh, criminal, and he let us have it for free. And that picture was taken at that time. I was 23. And uh, myself and a small pack of us organized the conference. And that must have been a moment of quiet in between logistic problems and right. <laughs> political fights. Yeah. Yeah, and, and actually we were searching for cover. And I wanted to appeal, like my dedication, to the younger queer activists because I knew that people my own age, our boomer generation, would probably read the book. But I wanted it also to be accessible to young queers so they would know their history. Right. And, oh, and my lover uh, suggested that that picture would be accessible mm -hmm. to young queers. Right, right. <laughs> It is, right? Yes. Young queers? Yes. Okay. It definitely is. Now, so two years later, there was another women's conference, right? In 1973, there was another women's conference. And this time it was called Lesbian, right? So, how did, so what happened to go from gay women to lesbian between 71 and 73? And tell us about what that sort of high feminism, early kind of lesbian moment was really like. Because now we have, I just heard another name the other day called Deep Les. How many here know what Deep Les is? <laughs> All right, I'll tell you later. But we are constantly changing our names. 
uh, lesbians and gays, and uh, because we're creative, but um, that that was a very important political difference back then. When uh, the homophile movement started back in 1950s with Mattachine and Daughters of Belitis, they used the word homophile. And when we came along in the 70s, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we had to do a major campaign to get the LA Times to stop saying homophile or homosexual and call us gay. And they did not want to do that. They were very plugged into the medical model of sick as in homosexual sick. And um, so for the early years, it was gay liberation movement, gay movement, blah, blah, blah. But women were feeling differently. Our heritage, how many of you know where the word gay comes from? Nada, nada. Uh, the word gay, um, I believe there's a lot in language. The word gay was originally spelled G-A-I. And it, it was used in French medieval theater. And it was used for, women, for men who assumed male roles on stage. Because women. Female roles. Female, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Gay men who assumed male roles, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, no, um, because women were not allowed on stage, so men assumed female role. And I think it was pronounced, and the French of files here, uh, guy. Um, then it made its way to England as gay, G A Y. And um, so a lot of lesbians were looking up history and said, this word is not historically about us. And instead, we went and looked up Sappho of Lesbos. There was a Greek poet in 600 BC whose name was Sappho, and she lived on an island called Lesbos, uh, which is right off and still off the Aegean coast. And it's now called Mykonos, I believe. Yes. Oh, it's still called Lesbos, thank you. Um, so go home and look it up. <laughs> it's still there. And when we feminists uh, and lesbian feminists found out about that in the early 70s, we began to feel the lesbian represented us much more than gay did. And so we made a very big stink about it to gay men. <laughs> Um, who at first didn't understand, but eventually came to understand that we were not exactly the same. Right. But you also had to make a stink about it with women. Gay women versus lesbian. And that's the, that's the split I want to, or the change, the shift I want to hear you kind of describe for us. Okay, that came about at the conference. Um, well, actually much before the conference. The shift, um, before we made a, a big stink about it in the gay movement, and asked the Gay Community Services Center and the Gay Task Force to change their name. We, of course, um, talked about it with each other. At one time, they processed about it with each other. Okay, we <laughs> for two and a half years. <laughs> and um, so, so older gay women preferred to keep the name gay, and we younger lesbians or gay women were trying to tell them about the rich heritage of being lesbians. Mm -hmm. And so um, gradually the word lesbian did take over, I think because every young generation, their, their words do mm -hmm. take over because- right. They want to name themselves. Yes, right. yeah. Right. And, um, and that still keeps happening today. Okay. Now you talk about in the book- uh, Oh, deep les, can I just- Yeah, you certainly okay. can. See, because then we went away from and then we became dykes and then we became queers and, and now we're 
butcher, femme, or trans, and you know the naming thing has gotten very complicated. Um, and recently, there's a new movement. I think it started out of England um, that if you were deep les, then you were like reclaiming the word lesbian instead of queer. Mm. So this is a new movement. Okay. Okay, interesting. Now, you talk about in the book, um, after the 1973 conference, you kind of had a nervous breakdown. There was a lot of trauma affiliated with the conference and the aftermath of the conference. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who haven't read the book yet? Why was that such a shattering experience for you? Personal, political? Talk about my nervous breakdown. <laughs> well, you, you wrote about it. That's different. I don't have to look at anybody. <laughs> close your eyes. You can close your eyes. Um, no, I did want to. I did talk about it in the book on purpose. Um, Politics is hard. I mean, that's yeah, part of it. Yeah, it is. That particular conference was probably the hardest of my life. I'll just a brief overview. Is it was a weekend at UCLA. Two thousand lesbians had come from twenty-six states. Um, I know several women here were there. Um, all across the country. The first night, Friday night, we had a transsexual appeared on stage to sing. And the room just blew up and, and it was a horrible traumatic experience with a final vote ending. There were 1,500 women in the room. The final vote was like 740 to oh 760. Right. Mm -hmm. um, whether the transsexual woman should stay or go. The next night, Kate Millett, who was our chosen keynote speaker, Saturday night, appeared on stage like totally drunk. Oh, great. You and I should have thought about that for tonight. <laughs> the following morning, Robin Morgan, who was a famous editor of Ms. Um, and called herself a political lesbian, meaning she didn't sleep with lesbians, but she agreed with us politically, uh, proceeded to tell the audience of 1,500 women that we were the organizers. She was kind of slicing and dicing the whole movement. It was the most divisive speech I've ever seen. And she called the organizers Trotskyists, um, which at that time was a really dirty word because of abortion and Boston and a whole bunch of things. So Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, it was a, for, for an organizer, it was a real tough weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Al-Qaeda, multiple bombs right. going off at right. the same time. Right. And a weekend that lasted for months and months. Yes. <laughs> also. And that Sunday morning after Robin and Morgan's speech, the organizers got together and we actually talked about abandoning our conference. Wow. We were so bruised and battered. Um, because not just those three things, but lesbians came from all over, and there were many different kinds of lesbians. There were gay women, there were radical feminists, there were Amazon nationalists, there were feminist socialists, there were major splits among lesbians politically, and we were all arguing about it. We were trying to form a national lesbian agenda. And I didn't get the nervous breakdown on Monday morning, but um, in the next two months, everybody began, went home and wrote about it in all the gay press. Mm -hmm. And um, it just got me down. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the organizers were accused of being politically incorrect in several specific ways. Mm -hmm. 
Um, oh, the other thing was my Trotskyist lover broke up with me that weekend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was actually a disastrous sort of way because technically I broke up with her. You've all heard this before. But <laughs> when we were accused of being Trotskyist, I kept waiting for her to say, no, no, I'm the Trotskyist. But she didn't. So it was, there was two things. It was the political and the personal betrayal. Right. And um, I think a lot of uh, organizers do experience post-traumatic stress syndrome mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, after, especially after major events or campaigns. Right. Right. Um, after six months of doing something and... And the reason um, you do it is because you're so hopeful. Yeah. Right? And then you kind of get your heart broken. Yeah. In the conference. And then you wait. Uh, I think we lost a lot of good organizers that way right. from our movement. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I want to, because you've been an activist for, you know, I was trying to count how many decades and it somehow manages to almost exceed how many decades you've been alive. Um, if we start her in, in late 1960s, so you get 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that's, you, get, you get six decades. Well, the first decade I was active in the convent, okay, so, so that's I wouldn't a whole count different that. Thing. So we'll go five. <laughs> but because of the five decades, you really can provide the long view. Because in a, you know, in a real sense, modern gay history is 60, 70, 80 years old. You know, it's a post-World War II event, basically. So if you think about your involvement, in 1971, you go back 20 years and you're at Mattachine and Daughters of Belitis. You come up 20 years and you're in the middle of Reagan, Bush, and AIDS, right? If you mark it instead at 1991, you come up to today and you go back to 1971. So you're kind of in the middle of the old turning into the new, and then the new turning into the whatever it has become. Mm -hmm. So I want to think a little bit, just from your observations, going back and you know, thinking about writing the book and taking the time that it took you, can you help us kind of connect those decades a little bit in terms of how you've seen the major, you know, the major battles obviously were happening? Because that same thing you just described with the lesbians happened in Mattachine about meeting number three. Right, you got eight guys meeting in Silver Lake, and by about the third meeting, they're starting to fight about those things. So, two thousand lesbians, eight queens. You know, it, it getting to item number one on the gay agenda is really hard. So, um, so can you just give us a little bit of overview of some of the things that you, as you looked back, some of the things that were heartbreaking or that were fulfilling or that were major shifts you could could notice. Well, I, I have talked about major shifts before because I, I like to study social movements. Um, if you're going to be an activist in one movement, I think you have to study some others. Yeah. Um, or else you, you think your movement is the only thing that ever happened and is somehow terribly unique. And actually a lot of it repeats from other movements. Mm -hmm. When I was very young, I read a book called Centuries of Struggle which talks about the first suffrage movement. And I'm so glad I read that because it kept me sane through the second wave. Because mm -hmm. um, you knew it was going to be hard. Yeah, <laughs> but, but also nuances. Like, for instance, right now or recently, we've been focused into a single-issued movement around gay marriage, which I learned early is a really bad thing to do to focus any movement yeah. around a single issue. Because when you pass that issue, 
or it becomes apparent that you're not going to get that, like the ERA, the movement tends to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank God, we, pro we passed Prop 8. We can all go home and drink cocktails for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Or we passed gay marriage. All right, that's the end of the gay f uh, civil rights fight. It's over. Mm -hmm. So, um, but anyway, each decade, I think for... Um, 1960s really belonged to the black civil rights movement. Um, Vietnam and the anti-war movement really gave birth, I call it the mother, and the civil rights struggle was the mother of the women's movement. Mm -hmm. Women started to break away after they were in those movements. Then we had uh, the half-brother-sister, the gay movement. Um, I would say in the 1970s, you know, was obviously our decade. It was also the feminist decade. Um, I think uh, the hotspot highlight of both movements, feminist and gay, were taking place in the same decade. Mm -hmm. But I also saw our movement change from a radical, uh, grassroots-based movement, the gay movement I'm talking about, into the 1980s, where we consolidated into much more of a civil rights struggle. The movement didn't start being gay civil rights. It was called gay liberation, women's liberation. It meant freedom for women, not just a half a dozen rights or all rights. Those parts of the movement were more radical. Um, we went mainstream in 1980s and um, I think that was an important consolidation phase. We got all of our big national organizations in Washington and in New York. It's a national, natural progression of a movement. Mm -hmm. I think in the 1990s, the trans movement and queer politics really reinvigorated the gay movement yes, I agree with you. a lot yep. and brought it back to the campuses and uh, gave New professors, right. something to teach to Thank the goodness. younger generation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and of course, AIDS was part of that as well, and in bringing the, the gay and lesbian communities back together in the mid and late 80s, when, as you write about, there had been some major, major shifts there. But before we get into the 80s and AIDS, I want to talk a little bit more, um, more about the radicalism that you talked about. She, she used a phrase that you may not be familiar with, anti-war movement. <laughs> um, we don't have one of those anymore. To speak of, uh, you don't see it that we had back in Vietnam, uh, and so I want in the book you talk a lot about your work with the LA Free Press and what you call advocacy journalism, and I'm not sure that we all are familiar with what that means. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about about your work as an advocacy journalist and also about the notorious and the notable stories that you did back in the what 72, 73, 74 in that period. Through um, the kind of runs uh, up to 1976, but there's a, so 71 to 76. Okay, so about a five-year period. So yeah. talk about advocacy journalism. Um, the Lesbian Tide was also an advocacy right. paper. Um, those of us who were activists and wanted to be journalists started writing in a different format. I think it also came out of New York. I'm, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure my, my partner knows the first um, major journalists who started writing in this style. But um, I wanted to, I had started The Lesbian Tide and was falling in love with journalism. I really started loving it. But I didn't want to give up being an activist. Um, and I needed a few uh, dollars. So I went over to the LA Free Press, which was at the 5500 block on Hollywood Boulevard. 
and ask the uh, director, Art Konkin, who is going to be here today, but he just finished having surgery. He's 83. Um, so he sends his love to any old and readers he's rallying, of the free. Right? He's doing okay. Yes, yes. Good. Yes, he's very ornery, so I think he'll last. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you went and asked uh, him for a job. Yes, yes, because I wanted to learn more about this journalism. I had uh, majored in social work and gotten my degree graduate in social work, but then afterwards I fell in love with journalism because you could be an activist and a journalist. So advocacy journalism was the way we all began to write and not uh, dropping the veneer of objective journalism and being open and using the first person um, and claiming that you were a participant in the stories or the movements that you were uh, re reviewing. And the press, the gay and lesbian and feminist press, grew enormously. You know, before internet and before uh, cell phones, um, we did really talk to each other. Um, <laughs> And the way we did nationally um, was through a press. There must have been, I would say, probably somewhere close to 100 newspapers. Every city had its gay paper, its feminist paper, and several others. Uh, LA at one time had five or six prominent gay papers. Uh, and, and the left had its paper. So. Um, that's how we talked to each other. You sent out a press release and, and 70 other newspapers would print it and talk about the issue you wanted to talk about. So it was almost as good as the internet. It was a lot slower, but <laughs> it worked. And, and we were all embroiled in advocacy journalism and openly writing as journalists from, uh, from an I place. Okay. Tell us about one or two of your favorite, most notorious stories that you, that you did for LA Free Press. Uh, I put my favorites in the book. Um, including, let me see, um, probably the one that was the most touching was interviewing Emily Harris of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Um, you know, when they captured Patty Hearst, um, a year later they were also captured, and Emily Harris was one of the SLA members. And I was very touched by being with her in jail. Um, I guess because she was my own age, and she brought up the question to me in a very personal way, like, why haven't you picked up a gun for the revolution? Yeah. And women were asking each other that. Activists were asking each other, should I step over that line? Am I a coward for not doing that? Mm -hmm. So Emily made a really big impression on me, and I just followed her all the rest of her life. She came out as a lesbian, <laughs> uh, maybe 15 years ago. Um, the other was, uh, curious, I tell the story in the book about a Nazi. He was captain of the El Monte branch of the National Socialist Party. And um, I should have hated him like he was a major pig. And he uh, blew up, tear gassed a Rosenberg rally, um, which was for two people who were accused of spying, and he, you know, went around throwing bombs. Luckily, no one had been hurt. But when you come face to face with some of these people, and I, I saw the amount of hatred in his rage, and I guess that interview was important to me because I kind of recognized, well, rage 
that depth of rage was the same on the right as on the left mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if that depth of hatred could really change society. Yeah. Yeah. So these people brought up lessons. Mm -hmm. it's, these are, I'm telling you in the book, these are fascinating stories and the details that, that you give us are, are really, I mean, you know, we sit here in the world of, oh, the, the enemy's Fox News. Well, the enemy back then was not Fox News. And so it's really interesting to kind of think about the difference between the left and right of today and the left and right of 30 or 40, well, 40 or 50, really, years ago. Um, so it's the, quite The enemy quite was the cop on the corner, for yeah, one. Yeah. And, well, she tells a great story about, it's the story where you're being taken to interview your Nazi, right? And you're blindfolded in this whole thing. Well, clearly at one of the meetings, and I may be conflating two stories, but at one of the meetings there was an FBI informant. Right, because there are only how many of you in the room, and, and the yeah. FBI knew about it. There were, what, five six, of you? Six, six of us in the room. And, one and of that was, was with the weather, weather, weather underground. underground. That's right. So they had yeah. maybe more reason um, to be there. But what I was shocked the other year during my research, I was down at one archives and I found a leaflet uh, of the first conference I just told you about, the 1971 rather peaceful conference at Metropolitan Community right. Church. And um, they have FBI files there. I should have brought it today. But the FBI was there also yeah. because um, they later declassified the leaflet, the leaflet <laughs> we had run. The main leaflet of the conference they had picked up and uh, scribbled on, and so they were at all of our events. Right, and these are the J. Edgar years. Yes. Of course. So, you know, they were everywhere, and you came in very close contact with a lot of that. So, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot in here, um, including some great lesbian drama, but that's another whole. Um, let's, let's talk about some local um, issues for a bit. Um, the, uh, the, the Gay Services Center, you were one of the early people involved there, you and Morris, and a few others. Um, that was also complicated and difficult. So tell us a little bit about what those struggles were and how you tried to work through them. Um, I wasn't involved in the early birth or early years of the You came on second decade, but I guess. Um, no, Morris had asked me to be involved and when he was starting in 71 with the others, but I said no at the time. Um, and looking back, I, I think I would have still said no. And the reason I did is questions like him ha helped me define. I said, I only have one lifetime, and it could be really short. I want to stay involved with lesbian things. And I knew if I joined that project and or others, um, I'd be involved with the gay thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's turned out to be quite an involvement, the gay center. And so I said, no, I'm a lesbian primacist. Mm -hmm. I want to use up my batteries for lesbian and or lesbian feminist or lesbian queer, lesbian something stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't come on board that scene till 1975. I kind of wanted to avoid Morris's, there's kind of a code among, among uh, organizers and leaders um, and sometimes we use it to stay friends and it's sort of like you stay out of my backyard, and I'll stay out of yours. And sometimes when you have a, a bunch of friends who are also creating their own projects, so I wanted to respect that, uh, uh, another reason, and stay out of Morris's, because I wanted to work with him on joint projects. So against my better judgment, I took this part-time job at the Gay Community Services right. Center, uh, just because I needed the money. 
And um, I had my job at the Free Press and a little bit of funds from the Lesbian Tide. And I was really 35 broke. cents an issue on the Lesbian Tide, <laughs> by the way. Now, at the very top, I got paid $700 a month, very at the end. Oof. Yeah. So um, I went to work at the Gay Community Services Center, just a part-time publicist for the Lesbian Health Clinic. But then I sort of landed there in the middle of a lesbian separatist riot that was on its way to forming, mm -hmm. and that resulted in the strike. Um, on May 1st of 1975, the Gay Community Services Center fired 16 employees on one day. Uh, most of them were lesbians. The fight was over whether the center could incorporate feminism or not. And um, so in response to that, we, meaning the, the lesbian feminists and the uh, radical gay men, um, issued a strike against the center. And it's a famous part of LA's history, so I wanted to tell it in the book so that people would know. Um, those kind of clashes happened in every other city in the country between gay men and lesbians at the time. In our city, it took the formation of a strike, but in other cities, um, all different kind of formations. And, and way back then, um, we had a generation of men who were not born and raised by feminist mothers. They were really very, very sexist, chauvinist pigs. Mid-century men, yeah. still. Yeah. yeah, they would all be in their 70s mm -hmm. by now, 70s and 80s, 80s, and they were just like really horrible <laughs> in, in their perspective on where women belonged. And um, nowadays, we need lesbian separatism far less. <laughs> because yeah. nice guys uh, got born. Um, when I look at the generation yes. of young gay men today, even young straight men, I say, how could this have possibly happened, this improvement, <laughs> mm -hmm. in two generations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so there's your optimism. I knew it was in there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think lesbian separatism still has a place um, for women who want to spend a couple years in an all-female environment. Just be like gay fairies, mm -hmm. the all-male yeah. mm -hmm. organization has a place. Mm -hmm. but Part of what was interesting for me reading those stories, uh, again, you know, the political aspect of it was beyond sexual politics and was also politics politics. Part of the, the women were divided by which women were communists or socialists and which ones weren't. You know, so it became a labor versus a gay kind of situation. And that's, again, that's part of the history that even people who are fairly, you know, have a fairly good depth of knowledge on these issues, we, for, communism is not something we kind of deal with anymore. You know, so it's really interesting to see that in 1975, that was a split among the women in this strike. Well, today, you know, they call Obama a socialist. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole, it's a, it's a very interesting other level of the kind of history there. Um, all right, a couple more things, and then we're going to open it up to you guys. Um, one thing is a, a kind of personal question, which is just about the process. Joke. <laughs> it was the, we wish Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if he's a socialist, yeah. I'm a Crayola. Um, in terms of writing the book, it took you years to write the book, and, and it's a very interesting, difficult process, obviously, to write a memoir and to kind of rehash and rethink all of those things. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about um, what, 
What did you learn about yourself in this? And like, what would you say to yourself, your 23-year-old self, if you could go back and whisper one thing in, in her ear? Um, and it's not, it gets better, I hope. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, not at all. I learned that I was a lot nuttier than I thought I was. Mm. <laughs> uh, I didn't remember until I started writing, you know, um, that, uh, and as a lot of it goes with youth and hormones, mm -hmm. um, I, I was pretty extreme. Um, so, lessons or... Did it surprise you that you were so extreme when you went back and really retold well, it? I remembered it, obviously, to write <laughs> right, it down. Right. But, um, and I was glad I was, you know, but some of it was a little hard to write down, to be that honest. Mm -hmm. There are several chapters I would have liked to have left out of the book. Right. Um, about my father and myself, mostly. Right. Um, but, uh, but I wanted, I was compelled by the honesty, and, and I knew that the kind of books that people were reading needed to be honest. Right. So, um, what would I say to that uh, young person? I guess I would say, um, I would try to say, not that she would listen. Um, I guess I would say, um, don't take everything so seriously. Chill out. Don't take it personally. Mm -hmm. Mostly don't take it personally. Yeah, yeah. These movements come and go. They do these things. And it's really not all about you. Right. Um, those 17 things that happen negatively, it was not all about you. So don't go home and feel terrible um, that it was all about right. you. Right. Um, and that's... Um, I guess that's yeah. what I would say. I mean, we know the personal is political, you know, became the kind of mantra, but the political is personal is also there. Yeah. You know, and you live that as much as anybody I've ever seen in terms of this story. Yeah. They're inextricable. Was, the political you and the personal you are inextricable for these years. Yeah. So. And for the, the, pre, the next, until I was probably around 50. And I also wanted to show other young activists, I dedicate the, the book to queer young activists, that, um, that the struggle between having a personal life and a political life is very worthwhile and that you can handle it. And I believe that we're all called to activism. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in being born to consume. Um, and so I wanted to kick butt a bit on that okay. one. And I, one last question, and then I'm gonna open it up to the audience. But um, you did a favor for one of my students a, f um, a couple months ago and did an interview about being uh, Chicana, butch, lesbian. And you also, I think, when you're writing the book, you're very much in that mode as well. So can you talk a little bit about sort of your kind of grown-up butch identity and what that, does it feel different than your kid butch identity and, and sort of how that, let's kind of conclude with that and then we'll open up to questions from the well, audience. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of my friends wanted me to put more about being butch in the book. Um, and as I wrote it, now looking back, that's one of the things I, I would have liked to dwell more on that because there's kind of a, a new wave of butch and femme separate uh, liberation movements going on now. And in the next book, I will put some more of that. Um, but I wanted to write a book um, that was clearly from a butch perspective, which is different from uh, than an androgynous lesbian okay. or 
maybe a femme lesbian. I've read a lot of work by femme lesbians. Um, I don't know if they write better or more or whatever. Um, but um, there's it's been a lot prettier. of work um, by femme lesbians and, and comparatively little by butch lesbians mm -hmm. uh, with some exceptions like Stone Butch Blues mm -hmm. and other notables, but very little. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of let that part of my personality leak into all of the stories, the, uh, the political stuff. I think um, I, I got to where I was because I was butch. I wanted to not pull back on the love scenes mm -hmm. and hide that and get all egalitarian in my lovemaking uh, lies. Uh, so right now this book I just let it let it flow but I think next book the sequel I'm, I'm gonna go more into gender identity and mm -hmm. talk about that okay good we welcome that <laughs> and we also welcome your questions and comments so um, let's uh, take a deep breath and uh, think of some interesting questions or comments hi I'll repeat the question when that, she's finished. Um, lesbians tend to be the toughest community in terms of accepting uh, trans men. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if from your perspective as a feminist, and the history of uh, dealing with the male sexist chauvinist pigs even in the gay movement, if you could perhaps speak to what your thoughts are about why that might be. The question is about the continuing relationship and difficulty between lesbians and trans men. Is it? Yes. I wasn't quite sure. Is that? Yes. I, I wanted to hear your thoughts as to whether you had any perspective. Is that changing? So, I mean, especially since you connected back to the, the trans woman that was the problem uh, in 1973. Well, I don't want to say she was a problem. It was the it first event. It became a problem. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah. A, a lot of transgender people call it historically one of the first um, transgender events in their history. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a, a problem at all. It, it showed itself to be an issue. But then went away, unfortunately, for a long time. Um, the relationship of the lesbian community to trans men. It's very fractured. Um, I, I'm a little surprised to hear what I, I thought you said was that of all the communities to accept trans men, lesbians were the most fractious about it? It's a, it's a kind of a reputation gap that So maybe you disagree with that. In my short time. Um, yeah. Well, I was just wondering what these other movements were, and I guess you're referring to the, the gay male movement. Yes, and the straight community. Ah, right? ah. Well, the straight community, of course, has no issue with it because uh, they just feel like, oh, good, somebody's taking a stance in the binary. They're declaring they're male or female. I can understand that. That's not queer. That's not different. So, th of course, they wouldn't have any problem or issue with it. Um, so, I don't think they deserve a lot of kudos for that. But, um, yeah, I, the last four or five years, there's... Um, I guess I'm, I'm just wondering what to say. I have a lot of lesbian friends, lesbian feminists and young lesbian friends who are very cool with trans men and or trans women. It's, it's, you know, it's part of the broader picture. We go to parties together. We work on issues together. I have heard mostly online 
that older lesbian feminists sometimes have real issues. There's like four or five of them really speaking out strongly against mostly, well, trans women, oddly right. enough, yeah. um, and others trans men, like Michigan. Uh, I mean, I'll stick my neck out and say, um, I don't understand why Michigan doesn't allow trans women in because here are a group of people who said, I am woman, <laughs> let me roar. And, um, and, but trans men are, are a group of people who said, I am male, let me roar. And yet they're okay to come into a lesbian space. So I have, I think it's kind of flipped around backwards. But all I can say is that when I've talked in the Butch Voices conferences and um, other places, that I think that we are allies. The, the whole trans movement and the lesbian movement is that we are allies. We have a lot of crossover. There's a lot of trans people going with lesbian women uh, or lesbian people. Um, so it's a bit of a mess right now. I think it's progressing. Um, there is sometimes there's a backlash from lesbians saying the trans thing is receiving all the federal dollars right now. It's getting so much of the media attention. Whatever happened to lesbian again? And um, so I think we just have to go back and forth and sort this out. And the more individual lesbian feminists who get to know individual trans people, that sorts it out a lot. I know meeting a good friend of mine, a, trans, a feminist trans woman, really helped me understand. She was as feminist or more so than I am, and a trans woman. And so she helped me. So every relationship, like I, I know three trans guys, and they are really different on the issues that mean things to me. Very different. And um, some of them are so male, I just, you know, want to open the, the playpen door and say, you know, call me back in a, five years after the tea wears down. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's because I'm 60, you know. <laughs> Does that answer? Help. Yes. <laughs> Does anyone dare follow that? As, actually, I saw you had your hand up. Yes. Um, you write that homosexuality is a people's lifestyle in the future. Do you still believe that in one of your predictions? You must, must have read the free press. <laughs> oh, um, but that particular essay wasn't in this book, was it? <laughs> oh. oh, the clip, yes, yes, because I did write that as a dyke columnist for the LA Free Press. I wrote a whole essay on how and why homosexuality is the lifestyle of the future. And I do see it happening. I wrote that in 1973. And I see it more and more in the gender blending, gender bending. Um, not even straight people want to get married so much anymore. Uh, in the old definition, they're looking for new ways to put together family. And we as queers are showing them a lot of uh, possibilities. And I just think when you take, um, I think it's very economic. As I said in that early essay, when God was calling Moses out of the desert and saying things like, go forth and multiply, he was talking to like a crowd of four or 500 people. 
No, it wasn't, it wasn't a big thing. You know, and there was the Iraqis, 300 people tribe, and then the French and the Celtics, you know, maybe they had 900 people. So he was talking, those biblical pronouncements, go forth and multiply, was an economic imperative. <laughs> no one's saying that anymore. You know, and that's why one of the reasons I think that uh, much more queer blending and separation of procreation from marriage is well on its way. And um, it's a good thing. I think uh, a lot of straight people and sometimes we uh, queers are frightened. Oh no, what if marriage falls apart? The uh, marriage rate is at 55% or the divorce rate. And I think things need to fall apart in order for new things to build in the space they were taking up. And I still do believe that, and I, I have seen more of it happening. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you wrote that before yeah. David Bowie was really famous. <laughs> so following up on what you just said, and referring to one of Chris's earlier questions, I remember, in those days, the arguments among lesbians and queers were about what positive critique of the system do you want to make? Is it capitalism? Is it patriarchy? What new thing? When are we going to bring into being? Mm -hmm. And as you said, in the 80s and 90s, it became much more about putting out fires on um, you know, the face of this hideous epidemic, and then about securing practical, particular rights. Do you see, do you see some new positive critique and some new positive vision of a future emerging out of the young careers that you're working with now? Um, I certainly see it theoretically, at least, out of, in the Occupy movement, you know. Um, do I see it with young queers? Um, I, I think so, traces of new forms and what they would do uh, among the more artistic community, the more activists. Um, I think this whole uh, questioning gender and inventing gender is... Um, part of making a new way to evaluate human beings. So yes, I, I do think they're not talking about it the way we used to talk about it, like revolt, and, but they do throw the word revolution around a whole lot. So um, systemic change, I think. I wish we were more concentrated with a louder voice. Yeah. But is and that what you mean, Robin? Yeah. And more of a critique of patriarchy than capitalism, I would say, right? Gay ink. You know, um, emerging in the in the '90s, especially. Um, did you want to follow up on that? No, I didn't. Or, oh no. I wanted to go back for oh, Okay. Okay. I was just going to mention UCI, the conference at UCI for me. I mean, I came out late, like at 31. I think that's how old I was. <laughs> that band that came from Chicago and performed that changed my life. I mean, oh my God, that was the most. There was a band from Chicago. They were all. It's called Lavender Women. No, no, it was called the Something of Women Band. Family of Women. And somebody played the, the fiddle, you know, the, oh my God. <laughs> now, why did that change your life? I just never, I, for me, it was just, it was just so beautiful and so different from anything I'd ever seen as a possibility in my own life. I just was, plus everybody was half naked. <laughs> <laughs> we get to the truth. <laughs> Yeah. 
It was like our Woodstock. Yeah. I, I call it the lesbian Woodstock because the sheer numbers of people, and we weren't spread out all over UCLA, but gathered between a couple of buildings, and it was a mind-blowing number back there to see that there were Connecticut, Mississippi. Uh, I was driving down Wilshire Boulevard on one day, and I saw walking along this odd-looking woman. She had a wool cap on her head, and long black tresses, and she was dressed like she had come from Maine or something, walking down Wilshire Boulevard. And I said, I'll bet she's a dyke going to the conference, and maybe that's the only clothes she could put in her thing. So I stopped, and I picked her up, and sure enough, she was a dyke going to the conference. <laughs> and she was from Maine. <laughs> and had hitchhiked the whole time. Wow. So it was a lesbian uh, Woodstock, and there are a lot of pictures. I saved a lot of the photos of them down at the One Archive, and maybe we'll do a, a presentation. Okay. Some people can see uh, pictures in old copies of Sister Kevin's yeah. newspaper, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. In Sister newspaper, there's a lovely collage of the conference. Um, it's really famous. I've used it a number of times. Yeah. Along with the Lesbian Tide, there was also a newspaper in L.A. called Sister that Donna worked on. And everybody who was a, uh, any sort of queer woman uh, read both papers religiously. And that's how we stayed in touch with each other and knew what was going on and told each other. And we did a lot of gossip was in there, too, <laughs> in a veiled sort of politically correct way. Yes. Yes. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I hadn't given any thought. Um, just to tell everybody what she's talking about, there's a, a scene at the San Diego Women's Festival where um, I say they didn't allow electronics. There were no uh, electric guitars or anything else electronic because electronics, particularly the male electronic guitar, was considered patriarchal and could not be on women's land. <laughs> we were extreme. Um, that's very interesting because, you know, that's the, uh, the new way we're doing everything, the new power source in the Western world is plug it in or don't plug it in. Um, and it was invented by our government and later by men in the Silicon Valley. And it's hard. <laughs> that was a throwaway to you. Oh, stop it. I was thinking about touch pads myself, and I thought that was much more lesbian. That's an interesting question. <laughs> we could have argued the same thing about the printing press, or the television, or the radio. So, um, if you wanted to get really radical about it uh, and be Mary Daly about it, you could probably do a, an analysis, a radical feminist analysis about that. But um, sooner or later, we all kind of wind up working with these various new forms of technology. And, um, Maybe there should and, be there are and, and our forms of technology, women's forms, are not as valued right. in our society. Right. And because it's capitalist and patriarchal, right. as... Uh, uh, new forms invented to kick the capitalist society along 
and that's what electronics are doing. I think what we need is a lesbian Shabbat. <laughs> then we have an electronic free 24 hours. Yeah. Electronic Shabbat, you know, Sabbath, Shabbat. Jewish oh. Shabbos. That's, you know, that's a no electronics for no fire, no heat for, oh, yeah, okay. sundown to sundown. So maybe we just need a lesbian Shabbat and that would cover it. Uh, one or two more quick questions before we go yeah, when, to when, A day when everybody unplugged. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Occupy, keep this in mind. Yes, okay. Occupy Electronics. Um, uh, in, uh, in one or two more comments, questions? Yes, back in the back. I just, I wanted to ask you about um, your, I know that you recently confirmed with Kuguras at Human Resources in Chinatown, and I was curious as to how you, you know, just some, what are your general ideas about the way that performance art and art in general um, is intertwined with when I was growing up uh, as a political activist, I totally didn't see any connection. I was hardcore politico. Those people are wasting a lot of time, energy, and resources. They should get out there on the barricades and, and sign petitions and walk door to door. So, um, I, oddly enough, when I went to Mexico, I began to understand how art and culture do influence our politics. Um, you asked me if I thought it should or could or is a positive. Uh, and having worked with Rocky in the thing you did Rocky, recently. Rocky, I'll have to yeah. take that one on tour. Right. Um, that was actually my first performance piece uh, ever. Tell people uh, what you did. Ago. Tell people about it. Yeah. Well, Raquel Gutierrez, who has played my younger self at the book launch and has now become a good buddy, calls me up and says, we need to do... I need to give you a haircut in a barber chair and, and it's performance art down at USC in front of people and talk about lesbian organizing. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, say that again. I, I, maybe I, I misunderstood some of the pieces. <laughs> and right there you have in the concept of how she's putting together things that the first wave or a second waivers never would have put together. And, and uh, when I got there, I was talking to a whole bunch of people I didn't know. They didn't look particularly queer or, or uh, gay. So I perceived that I was talking to straight people, which was also a first for me. But So she threw me in the barber's chair and asked me a bunch of questions about lesbian organizing that needed to be relevant to straight people. We had a great time. Um, the whole crowd sat down. They were wandering around and talking. Um, and I've come to see that, um, yeah, art and artists, first of all, that I think artists are in the vanguard of what we politicos will wind up stealing for our next action. Well, you know, it can often be found among artists and performance art. And um, I think it's very important to nurture that part of ourselves because um, that's where we live. Since my partner and I came back from Mexico, I decided I am way too old to be a political activist and a politico and dash off to meetings every third night and be home by 11.30 and all this business. And you have to show up at every meeting if you're doing a, you know, a conference or something. So I said to her, let's be cultural activists. Mm -hmm. and throw events like gender play and the lesbian legacy wall down at one and things like that. So I've come over a lot more. Um, and I think it's really important. 
um, artist and nurturing that and for some of the hardcore not to uh, dismiss what they're doing. Okay. Um, well, as we wrap up, let me say one other thing about something that's part of gay LA history that's happening in two weeks. Uh, the film, how many of you have seen the documentary film On These Shoulders We Stand that our friend Glenn McElhaney, who's right there, say hello Glenn, made. Um, Glenn's getting very involved with um, SB48 and getting this wonderful history into schools, which is so important and so wonderful. There's a screening at 7 p.m. At at, for PFLAG Los Angeles at the Westwood United Methodist Church. You can talk to Glenn later, and there's some flyers up in the front. Where are we going to do book signing, Noel? Do you want to do that here? Yeah, I, I just wanted okay. to say one thing. If you're going to buy my book, if you're ever going to buy it, please buy it here at Skylight, because they're a wonderful Thank institution. Thank you, Skylight. Yes. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Noel. Wonderful. What's going to happen is I will clear this out of the way. Bring out. A, would you ha would you like to have a table to sit behind? We'll bring out a table and you'll sit behind, um, and she'll sign away. We also have a bunch of books at the register, so please feel free to buy as many as you'd like. We'd love it if you bought the book first before you got it signed. Yes. <laughs> yes. A receipt sticking out of it would be a, a very good. Well, you thing. know, people get yes. it really. It's a yes. celebratory, and everyone's just like, "Oh, and I put the book under my arm, yeah. and they walk out." So yes. <laughs> make sure that that happens. Um, and uh, please check us out at Worldwide. Uh, skybooks.com and let's give Gene a wonderful yeah. round. Yeah. Wonderful Gene. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.